Bible, there is no 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. There's Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. That's it, okay? So here we are, we've just finished Samuel, and David is assuming the throne of the whole kingdom of Israel. But then we switch over to Chronicles, and it starts out with nine chapters of genealogy. Did anybody look through those at all? If you didn't, that's okay. But, you know, you start out and you've got nine chapters of genealogy. You know, my word, Lord, what is this? We go from Saul ascending the throne to all of this genealogy. And then we end up at the end of this genealogy with the time frame where it's at the end of the Babylonian captivity. What's going on? The book of Chronicles is actually the last book of the Hebrew Bible. And it was written during and after the time of the Babylonian captivity when Israel came back. And the genealogy is really important because what we've learned from Joshua and Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy is that God appointed territories and lands for the tribes and the families of Israel. And the priests, they had their assignments and their orders according to their genealogies. So when Israel came back from Babylonian captivity, they needed to know their heritage. They needed to know the genealogies. They needed to know what families they were a part of and where they stood, especially with the priestly line. When they went back, there were some priests that, you know, basically Ezra is looking at it going, you know, I think it's Ezra if I remember right. It's like, we don't know for sure what your lineage is, so we can't know for sure where you belong in your priestly duties. So we're going to kind of set you off to the side until we can get this all figured out. So all this is here to help the people of Israel figure out their place again in the land that God had given to them. But on top of that, this comes to the place where it's the end of basically the Old Testament. Going into that period before John the Baptist comes on the scene to announce the coming of Jesus. It's a period called the 400 years of silence where we don't really have any prophetic utterances from God to the people of Israel, okay? So what's going on here is they've been in Babylon for 70 years. Now they're coming out and they need to know where they belong and where their families are and all of that. And through all of this, this is pointing ultimately to the coming of Messiah, okay? And the last prophets of the Old Testament period focused a lot on the coming of Messiah. So that's where we're at. But after it goes through all of that, then in chapter 10, it brings us to Saul's death and the death of his sons. And what I want us to do is we're going to go to the end of chapter 10, verse 12. And this is going to give us a picture of everything else that we're going to look at today. All right. And this is an important foundation for us. And we need to think of it in light of what we've already known about Saul.
it says in verse 12, or 13, my apologies. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord and that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium. Seeking guidance, he did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. And you might think, well, wait a minute. He did consult the Lord and the Lord didn't answer. Remember, you know, the Philistines are there and they're getting ready to attack and Saul's freaking out and he's praying and God's not speaking to him. So he did inquire of the Lord, right? Well, he stopped seeking the Lord years before, right? Saul started doing what he wanted to do. Saul started pursuing his own agendas. And as he disobeyed God over and over and over again, the Lord was like, okay, we're done. And so what we see here is God saying, all right, that's it. And what's tragic about this is Saul had everything going for him, right? Think about it. He tells Samuel who to pick, okay? So it wasn't like Samuel just, you know, found a guy on the street or whatever. God was moving and told Samuel who to pick to be the king. And God put a new heart in him. God put his spirit upon him. God gave him godly men to help him with his rule and with his conducting the army and all of the things of the military. God gave him everything he needed. The word of God, Samuel is the prophet. You can't lose. He was set up for success. But as he became self-centered, and as he began to put his own agenda above God, and he stopped seeking the Lord, and he stopped following the Lord, things went downhill. God wanted to bless him, and God even promised, if you obey me, I will establish your kingdom after you forever. That's what God said. But yet Saul didn't follow through. And so with that in mind, and what we've known about Israel, okay, and what we've seen with Israel as we've looked at Exodus and Deuteronomy and Numbers, Leviticus, there's this attitude where God gave Israel everything they needed, right? He was there with them. He delivered them from Egypt with signs and wonders. He was there to provide for them. He was there to protect them. He was there to uh, teach them. He gave them Moses and Aaron. Everything they needed was right there. So they should have been able to stand firm, but they did not. So let's take a look. Chapter 81 of Psalms. And this is written by Asaph. Okay, the two Psalms that we're going to look at today. There were a lot of Psalms for this, this section. They all say a lot of the same thing, just different ways. So I felt like we needed to just focus on two that would give us the overarching ideas of things. But with Asaph, he was appointed by David as a worship leader. He was a priest. And he and his family were worship leaders appointed by David. So he wrote this. And it's during this time that we're looking at now with the coming of, of David into the, the kingship. It says, verse 1, Sing aloud to God our strength. 
Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song, sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon, on our feast day. For it is a statute for Israel, a rule of the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph. When he went out over the land of Egypt, I hear a language that I had not known. I relieved your shoulders of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him, and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of wheat, and with the honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. And God is speaking to Israel and saying, you know, I wanted to bless you. My heart was to fill you, abundantly pour into you. But you wouldn't have it. You were stubborn. You wanted to do your own thing. That's exactly what Saul did. God wanted to bless him, gave him the opportunities to have a successful life and kingship and all of that. But he would not listen to the Lord. And he suffered the consequences because of it. It all fell apart. Israel did not listen to the Lord. And did you see in verse 10, God said to Israel, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. He's telling his people to anticipate and expect and long for his filling, his provision, his goodness. And I think of, you know, you see baby birds in the nest and how big, like their, their mouths are bigger than their heads almost. And they're just huge and they're, they're agape and they're waiting. It's not like mama has to force feed them and that mama has to coax them to eat. She doesn't hit the nest and they are open and they are waiting in anticipation for mama to fill them. And that's the picture that God gives here. Like a mother bird fills her children and they have open mouths and expectation of the goodness and provision of mama. He wanted to fill them and bless them. And it wasn't just in spiritual things. Remember, God gave them a land. God gave them harvests. God gave them water. God gave them cattle. God gave them things for uh, the natural life and the supernatural life. God gave them the things that would bless them. He gave them things that would cause them to have fruitful, blessed families, strong families. All that was there for them. 
but they were stubborn. And when you think about this, the Lord wants to fill us. The Lord has good things for us. Remember, and I say this over and over again, but that verse where Jesus says, I think it's John 10, 10. uh, You know, I have come that they might have life and have it in abundance. Zoe, life, the essence and the fullness of how God designed life to be and have it abundantly. But our lives, when you look at the Christian life quite often, abundance and fullness and purpose and satisfaction are not necessarily words we would use a lot of times. I was reading Spurgeon and he said, we have little cups and we blame the fountain. We have little cups and we blame the fountain. God has an overabundance for us for all facets of life. But if we don't open up our mouths wide, if we come to him with a little cup, we're not going to get a whole lot. But it's not his fault. We need to be open and anticipating what he wants to do for us. So with that in mind, let's go over to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Ephesians 3.14. I know this isn't in the reading, but this is where it carries over, I think, so clearly into our Christian life, into our relationship with the Lord. Okay? So, actually, let's begin in verse 7. Paul says, Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone that is in the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So mystery is not that thing that God knew, but it wasn't revealed at that time. It was to come later, okay? And then look at this, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. And it blows my mind that what Paul tells us here is that God reveals his multifaceted wisdom to angelic beings through the church, through you and me. We saw that in Job, okay? Now, that wasn't the church, but we see how God taught Satan specifically, but everybody learned, of what God can do and God's relationship with people. And 
for us as Christians and as the body of Christ, when the angelic hosts look and see what God is doing in us and through us and for us, and how we pieces of dust and clay are indwelt by the living God and used for his glory. And we are temples of his Holy Spirit and we are his bride and we are his precious possession. The angels, I I think they've got to look at us and just go, no way. Whoa. How can you know the love of God to the fullness until you've seen something like the son of God give his life for the sins of people like us. That had to blow their mind. They're learning things about God by how he works through us and in us and for us. And so Paul goes on. So our our lives with the Lord transcend just this world that we see. He uses us. And there's a bigger world around us. For this reason, verse 14, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, that's the second time he said this, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. There is a lot here that we might be strengthened in our inner man, our spiritual being, to know experientially the love of God that is beyond knowing. It's so vast, it's so huge. How do you wrap your mind around the love of God with the help of God? It's so far beyond us. And get this, Did you see that it says that you may be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith? What's he talking about there? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He's talking to believers. So what's he saying? The word there for dwell means to be at home in. It doesn't mean just to live, but to actually be settled and comfortable in our hearts. And for me, I look at that and go, wow, Jesus, are you comfortable in this home that you've purchased? Are you settled and this is your house 
Or do you feel like you're just a guest? And that I have my own agenda for this household rather than letting you have your way with the home that you purchased on the cross. See, we need the help of the Lord. We need to be strengthened by the Spirit of God to be able to have our lives be in a place where Jesus is comfortable. Jesus is settled. Jesus can go through our heart, if you will, and go, oh yeah, this looks good. I'm comfortable here. So often I think, you know, there's, there's, an, old, there's an old story, My Heart, Christ's Home. Little teeny book, but it's where Jesus comes to live into the, in the heart of an individual. And Jesus is going through it and he's like, you know, that artwork just doesn't work here. You know, we can really renovate this room. Hey, I noticed that you've got a shop downstairs and you tinker around and stuff, but I can teach you how to make some wonderful things. Hey, while you were out today, I smelled something really bad coming from the upstairs closet. Maybe we should go check it out, see what's in that closet. And the guy's like, no, we don't need to do that, Jesus. And Jesus is like, yeah, I think we do need to do that. Jesus needs to feel comfortable in his home. And the Lord helps us to renovate this house of clay to where it's a beautiful temple of the Holy Spirit. And it takes time and it takes work that it says that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. I don't even know what that looks like. Don't ask me to explain it. Okay. I just don't. I just look at it and go, okay, well, if you're able to do exceedingly abundantly more than I ask, can ask or think, that is definitely exceedingly above more than I can ask or think because I don't even understand it. But the Holy Spirit of the Lord lives in each one of us. The one who is with the Father and the Son in creation indwells us. That's huge. And oh, that our hearts would be to let the Holy Spirit live his life through us. Because the ultimate end that God has for us, this side of heaven, and maybe the other side of heaven too, is to be conformed into the image of his son. To bear the family resemblance. So that when people look at us, they go, you know, you just look like your brother. You look just like your dad. That's the way I want to be. But I need the Holy Spirit to strengthen this inner man, to help me do it. And that's a lot more than I can ask or think, but he's able to do it. See, it's that willing heart. Saul didn't have that willing heart. Israel didn't have that willing heart. And a lot of Christians don't have that willing heart. A lot of Christians are like Spurgeon said, you know, I'm satisfied with a little cup. Or that's all they're willing to go to God with because they're scared of what might happen if they go with a watering trough or a swimming pool or something bigger. What'll happen if God really has his way with me? I don't know but I can guarantee you it's good because he's a good father. He wants to do more than we can ask or think. But are we willing? He had more for Saul than he could imagine. He had more for Israel than they could imagine. 
But they didn't want to go there. We need to go there. We need to go where God lives, where God is, and we need to abide with him. So that takes us back to Psalm 84. And this ties in. Remember, Jesus said, you abide in me and I in you. Right? We abide in each other. And you will bear much fruit. And this is a picture of what we see here. We've just looked in Ephesians where, you know, Paul's prayer is that the Lord would be able to rest and settle in and be comfortable dwelling in us. Well, this is us dwelling in his presence. Chapter 84 of Psalms, verse 1. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts. Something so small, or a sparrow or a swallow, there's a place for them in the house of the Lord. I was thinking about this yesterday because there's a mourning dove that apparently has made our home her home. And they were watching her, you know, and Jennifer's trying to see this morning maybe where she's, she's making the house, you know. But there's a home there, a place that's safe. Even for something so small as a bird, God loves us. And if he cares for, and, and we saw this this morning, you know, Jesus talks about it in, in when we were looking about how he cares for the sparrows and he knows when one dies, how much more valuable are we than a sparrow? There's a place for us at home with him. He made that possible through the blood of Christ. Verse four, blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. That word for dwell is similar to the one that we saw with Jesus dwelling in us. It's resting in and sitting in and abiding in and being at home in. Blessed are those who are at home in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. Paul said, I pray that you be strengthened in the inner man by the Holy Spirit. As they go through the valley of Baca, that's the valley of tears, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength. Oh, I skipped something. Sorry about that. Uh, yeah, blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca. They make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. I think of Joshua. Remember when Moses would go into the tabernacle? Joshua couldn't go in. 
But what we're told when we were going through the book of Exodus and Numbers, Joshua stood at the entrance of the tabernacle. I may not be able to go in, but I'm going to get as close as I can. I want to be there. You know, David says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. Verse 11, for the Lord is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. How do we get to this place? We are, we are dwelling in the presence of the Lord. I think the answer to it is verse 5. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion, in whose hearts are the roads to the place where God dwells. When I leave work and I have to make a Costco run, and I don't know the name of the road, you guys might know which one I'm talking about, but instead of getting on the Beltline over by Costco, I go north and I go down this road that ends up just turning, you know, we basically kind of go right up to, to 12. And the road is not well-traveled. You know, there's not a lot there. It looks like only people who live at the apartment complex and, you know, basically people who want to get on the Beltline go down there because the road is pretty beat up. It's not maintained. But as soon as you get on the highway, it's smooth sailing. When the storms are going on and the roads are bad and the snow is deep and slushy, the highway is always good, at least for me this year, okay? Every day I have to go down to Madison. And I've always had good roads. The highways are maintained. The highways are highways. They're elevated above everything else so that they don't get, you know, flooded and things like that. They're maintained so that we don't have the potholes and weeds and all sorts of stuff growing up in there. And they are frequented a lot. There's a lot of traffic on the highway. When I go down that little, little road going to the highway, usually there's me or me and one other car and that's about it. It's not heavily trafficked. And I think with our relationship with the Lord, we need to ask ourselves, what does the road look like to the Lord in our lives, in our hearts? See, some of the highways to the Lord are prayer, worship, obedience, faith, being in the word. And I think for a lot of Christians, our hearts look more like a trail, you know, that's an offshoot maybe of Devil's Lake or something that not too many people go down. And sometimes you can't even see where the trail really is because it's not traveled too often. Maybe we travel the road once a week on a Sunday. But if we frequent the highways of these things, that's how we get closer to the Lord. We are constantly going to the Lord, constantly seeking his presence to be with him, 
to dwell with him. And the more we do it, the more settled we become in our relationship with him. In Isaiah, Isaiah speaks of the highway of holiness, a life that is set apart for the Lord, frequented by those who follow the Lord. Our lives are supposed to be different. Do we make the path a regular thing in our lives to the Lord? You know, we come to church and we come up that road and we turn in the parking lot once a week, maybe twice a week. But see, you can come into this place and we can drive that road, but not necessarily connect with God because the true road is here in our hearts. This is where we connect with our Father. And this is where the Holy Spirit dwells. And so, gang, look at what God's given us. Saul had it good, but he didn't walk with the Lord. Israel had it really good, but they were stubborn and they didn't walk with the Lord. And we can see so many times throughout scripture and even in our own lives where God gives us opportunities and rather than walking with him, we do what we want to do and we miss out. You and I have better than they ever had. I used to be jealous of Daniel or Moses or Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Jealous of David. Jealous of Josiah. People who saw God in miraculous ways. But not a one of them were children of God adopted by the blood of Jesus Christ. Not one of them was filled and indwelt by the Holy Spirit because Christ hadn't come yet. Jesus said, he shall be with you and in you. So we have more than they ever did. Let's not go to God with a little cup. Let's be like those baby sparrows who it's just one gigantic mouth open in anticipation to our father going, okay, I want the life that you want me to have. I said that earlier this morning, you know, Charles Spurgeon said, God, give me what I want. And he said he could say that because he also said to the Lord, I want what you want. God, what do you want for me? I want that. And expectantly take the highways to him and let him fill you through his word, through your brothers and sisters in Christ, through worship and prayer and the working of his Holy Spirit within you. Let us not settle for adequate let us not settle for enough. If he is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than we can ask or think, let's ask for a lot.